Chapter 10 The Life and Adventures of James P. Beckworth, Mountaineer, Scout, and Pioneer, and Chief of the Crow Nation of Indians. Written from his own dictation by T.D. Bonner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Two days after the arrival of the general, the tocsin again sounded through our whole camp. The Blackfeet! The Blackfeet! On they came, making the very earth tremble with the tramp of their fiery war horses. In their advance, they surprised three men and two women belonging to the snakes, who were out some distance from camp, gathering roots. The whole five were instantly overtaken, killed, and scalped. As soon as the alarm was given, the old prophet came to our camp and, addressing Mr. Sublet, said, Cutface, three of my warriors and two women have just been killed by the Blackfeet. You say that your warriors can fight, that they are great braves. Now let me see them fight, that I may know your words are true. Sublet replied, You shall see them fight, and then you will know they are all braves, that I have no cowards among my men, and that we are all ready to die for our snake friends. Now, men, added he, turning to us, I want every brave man to go and fight these Blackfeet, and whip them so that the snakes may see that we can fight, and let us do our best before them as a warning to them. Remember, I want none to join in this battle who are not brave. Let all cowards remain in camp. Every man was impatient to take part, but, Seeing that his camp would be deserted and his goods exposed, he detained quite a number as well to guard the goods as to keep the general company, he not wishing to take part in the battle. There were over three hundred trappers mounted in a few moments, who, with Captain Sublet at their head, charged instantly on the enemy. The snake warriors were also on hand, thirsting to take vengeance on the Blackfeet for the five scalps of their friends. After retreating before us about five miles, they formed in a place of great security in a deep hollow on the border of the lake. At our arrival, the battle recommenced in good earnest. We and our allies fought them for about six hours, they certainly displaying great intrepidity, for they would repeatedly issue from their stronghold and make a bold sortie against us. When entrenched in their position, they had a great advantage over us, as it was difficult for a man to approach them without being shot, and to charge on them as they were situated would have occasioned us great loss of life. One Indian issuing from their position was shot through the backbone, thus depriving his legs of all power of motion. Seeing him fall, Sublet said to me, Jim, let us go and haul him away, and get his scout before the Indians draw him in. We went and, seizing each a leg, started toward our lines with him. The wounded Indian grasping the grass with both hands, we had to haul with all our strength. An Indian, suddenly springing over the breastwork, struck me a heavy blow in the back with his gun, causing me to lose hold of my leg and run. Both I and my companion were unharmed, 
and I, not knowing how many blows were to follow, deemed discretion on this particular occasion the better part of valor. Sublet made a strong demonstration against my assailant with his fists, at the same time calling me back and cursing me for running. I returned, and together we dragged the Indian to one of our men, also wounded, for him to dispatch. But the poor fellow had not strength sufficient to perforate the Indian's skin with his knife, and we were obliged to perform the job ourselves. After six hours fighting, during which time a number of the enemy were slain, we began to want nourishment. Sublet requested our allies to rub out all their foes while we went and procured refreshment. But on our leaving, they followed us, and we all arrived in camp together. On our return to the field of battle, we found the Blackfeet were gone, having departed precipitately as they had left a number of their dead, a thing unusual with the Indians. The fruits of our victory were 173 scalps, with numerous quivers and arrows, war clubs, battle axes, and lances. We also killed a number of their horses, which doubtless was the reason of their leaving so many of their dead on the field of battle. The trappers had seven or eight men wounded, but none killed. Our allies lost eleven killed in battle, besides the five slain before. But none of those killed in battle were scalped. Had this battle been fought in the open plain, but few of our foes could have escaped. And even as it was, had we continued to fight, not a dozen could have gone away. But, considering that we were fighting for our allies, we did not exert ourselves. As usual, on all such occasions, our victory was celebrated in camp, and the exercises lasted several days, conformably to Indian custom. General Ashley, having disposed of all his goods and completed his final arrangements, departed for St. Louis, taking with him nearly 200 packs of beaver. Previous to his departure, he summoned all the men into his presence and addressed them, as nearly as I can recollect, in the following words. Mountaineers and friends, when I first came to the mountains, I came a poor man. You, by your indefatigable exertions, toils, and privations, have procured me an independent fortune. With ordinary prudence in the management of what I have accumulated, I shall never want for anything. For this, my friends, I feel myself under great obligations to you. Many of you have served with me personally, and I shall always be proud to testify to the fidelity with which you have stood by me through all danger, and the friendly and brotherly feeling which you have ever, one and all, evinced toward me. For these faithful and devoted services, I wish you to accept my thanks. The gratitude that I express to you springs from my heart and will ever retain a lively hold on my feelings. My friends, I am now about to leave you to take up my abode in St. Louis. Whenever any of you return thither, your first duty must be to call at my house, to talk over the scenes of peril we have encountered, and partake of the best cheer my table can afford you. I now wash my hands of the toils of the Rocky Mountains. 
Farewell, mountaineers and friends. May God bless you all. We were all sorry to part with the general. He was a man of untiring energy and perseverance, cheerfully enduring every toil and privation with his men. When they were short of food, he likewise hungered. He bore full share in their sufferings and divided his last morsel with them. There was always something encouraging in his manner. No difficulty dejected him. Kind and generous in his disposition, he was loved equally by all. If, which was seldom, he had any disagreement with them, if he discovered himself in fault, he would freely acknowledge his error and ask forgiveness. Before he left, he had a word of advice for me. James, he commenced, since I have been here, I have heard much of your exploits. I like brave men, but I fear you are reckless in your bravery. Caution is always commendable, and especially is it necessary in encounters with Indians. I wish you to be careful of yourself and pay attention to your health, for, with the powerful constitution you possess, you have many valuable years before you. It is my hearty desire to have you do well and live to a good old age. Correct your fault of encountering risks for the mere ostentatious display of your courage. Whenever you return home, come and see me, James. You will be a thousand times welcome. And, should you ever be in need of assistance, call on me first. Goodbye. He left the camp amid deafening cheers from the whole crowd. I did not see him again until the year 1836. At the General's departure, we broke up our camp and marched on to the country of the Flatheads, on the Snake River. On our arrival at the new rendezvous, we were rejoiced to learn that peace existed between the two nations, the Flatheads and Blackfeet, and that they were in friendly intercourse together. This was very favorable for our purpose. For it is with Indian tribes, as with civilized nations, when at war, various branches of business are impoverished, and it becomes inconvenient for those engaged in them to make more than trifling purchases, just for the supply of their immediate wants. Hostilities are still more destructive to Indian commerce than to that of civilized nations, for the reason that the time and resources of the whole community are engaged in their prosecution. The sinews of war, with the Indian mean, literally, himself and his horse. We spent the summer months at our leisure, trading with the Indians, hunting, sporting, and preparing for the fall harvest of beaver. We made acquaintance with several of the Blackfeet, who came to the post to trade. One of their chiefs invited Mr. Sublet to establish a branch post in their country, telling him that they had many people and horses, and plenty of beaver, and if his goods were to be obtained, they would trade considerably. His being so far off prevented his people coming to Mr. Sublet's camp. The Indian appearing sincere, and there being a prospect of opening a profitable trade, Sublet proposed to establish a post among the Blackfeet 
if any of the men were willing to risk their scalps in attending it. I offered to go, although I was well aware the tribe knew that I had contributed to the destruction of a number of their braves. But, to the Indian, the greater the brave, the higher their respect for him, even though an enemy. So, taking my boy Baptiste and one man with me, we packed up and started for Beaver River, which is a branch of the Missouri, and in the heart of the Blackfoot country. On our arrival, the Indians manifested great appearance of friendship and were highly pleased at having a trading post so conveniently at hand. I soon rose to be a great man among them, and the chief offered me his daughter for a wife. Considering this an alliance that would guarantee my life as well as enlarge my trade, I accepted his offer and, without any superfluous ceremony, became son-in-law to Asesto, the head chief of the Blackfeet. Asesto, interpreted, means heavy shield. To me, the alliance was more offensive than defensive. But thrift was my object more than hymeneal enjoyments. Trade prospered greatly. I purchased beaver and horses at my own price. Many times I bought a fine beaver skin for a butcher knife or a plug of tobacco. After a residence among them a few days, I had slight difficulty in my family affairs. A party of Indians came into camp one day, bringing with them three white men's scalps. The sight of them made my blood boil with rage. But there was no help for it, so I determined to wait with patience my day of revenge. In accordance with their custom, a scalp dance was held, at which there was much additional rejoicing. My wife came to me with the information that her people were rejoicing, and that she wished to join them in the dance. I replied, No, these scalps belong to my people. My heart is crying for their death. You must not rejoice when my heart cries. You must not dance when I mourn. She then went out, as I suppose satisfied. My two white friends, having a great curiosity to witness the performance, were looking out upon the scene. I reproved them for wishing to witness the savage joicings over the fall of white men who had probably belonged to our own company. One of them answered, Well, your wife is the best dancer of the whole party. She outdances them all. This was a sting which pierced my very heart. Taking my battle-axe and forcing myself into the ring, I watched my opportunity and struck my disobedient wife a heavy blow in the head with the side of my battle-axe, which dropped her as if a ball had pierced her heart. I dragged her through the crowd and left her. I then went back to my tent. This act was performed in such a bold manner under the very noses of hundreds of them, that they were thunderstruck and for a moment remained motionless with surprise. When I entered the tent, I said to my companions, There now, you had better prepare to hold on to your own scalps, since you take so much interest in a celebration over those of your murdered brethren. 
Their countenances turned ashy pale, expecting instant death. By this time, the whole Indian camp was in a blaze. Kill him! Kill him! Burn him! Burn him! was shouted throughout the camp in their own language, which I plainly understood. I was collected, for I knew they could kill me but once. Soon I heard the voice of my father-in-law crying, in a tone which sounded above all, Stop! Hold! Hold, warriors! Listen to your chief! All was hushed in an instant, and he continued, Warriors! I am the loser of a daughter, and her brothers have lost a sister. You have lost nothing. She was the wife of the traitor. I gave her to him. When your wives disobey your commands, you kill them. That is your right. That thing disobeyed her husband. He told her not to dance. She disobeyed him. She had no ears. He killed her. And he did right. He did as you all would have done. And you shall neither kill nor harm him for it. I promised the white chief that. If he would send a traitor to my people, I would protect him and return him unharmed. This I must do, and he shall not be hurt here. Warriors, wait till you meet him in battle, or perhaps in his own camp. Then kill him. But here his life is sacred. What if we kill them all and take what they have? It will last but a few suns. We shall then want more. Whom do we get Sakopach powder from? We get it from the whites. And when we have expended what we have, we must do without or go to them for more. When we have no powder, can we fight our enemies with plenty? If we kill these three men, whom I have given the word of a chief to protect, the white chief will send us no more, but his braves will revenge the death of their brothers. No, no, you shall not harm them here. They have eaten of our meat and drunk of our water. They have also smoked with us. When they have sold their goods, let them return in peace. At this time, there were a great many flatheads at the Blackfoot camp as they were at peace with each other. After the speech of my father-in-law, a great brave of the Flatheads, called Badhand, replied, Hey! You are yourself again. You talk well. You talk like Asasto again. We are now at peace. If you had killed these men, we should have made war on you again. We should have raised the battle-axe, never to have buried it. These whites are ours, and the Flatheads would have revenged their deaths if they had been killed in your camp. The chief then made a loud and long harangue, after which all became quiet. As Astu next came to my camp and said, My son, you have done right. That woman I gave you had no sense. Her ears were stopped up. She would not hearken to you and you had all right to kill her. But I have another daughter, who is younger than she was. She is more beautiful. She has good sense and good ears. 
you may have her in the place of the bad one. She will hearken to all you say to her. Well, thought I, this is getting married again before I have even had time to mourn. But I replied, Very well, my father, I will accept of your kind offer, well knowing, at the same time, that to refuse him would be to offend, as he would suppose that I disdained his generosity. My second wife was brought to me. I found her, as her father had represented, far more intelligent and far prettier than her other sister, and I was really proud of the change. I now possessed one that many a warrior had performed deeds of bloody valor to obtain. For it is a high honor to get the daughter of a great chief to wife, and many a bold warrior has sacrificed his life in seeking to attain such a prize. During the night, while I and my wife were quietly reposing, some person crawled into our couch, sobbing most bitterly, angry at the intrusion, I asked who was there. Me, answered a voice, which, although well-nigh stifled with bitter sobs, I recognized as that of my other wife, whom everyone had supposed dead. After lying outside the lodge senseless for some hours, she had recovered and groped her way to my bed. Go away, I said. You have no business here. I have a new wife now, one who has sense. I will not go away, she replied. My ears are open now. I was a fool not to hearken to my husband's words when his heart was crying, but now I have good sense and will always hearken to your words. It did really seem as if her heart was broken, and she kept her position until morning. I thought myself now well supplied with wives, having two more than I cared to have. But I deemed it hardly worthwhile to complain, as I should soon leave the camp, wives and all. It is a universal adage, when you are among Romans, do as the Romans do. I conformed to the customs of a people really pagan, but who regarded themselves both enlightened and powerful. I was risking my life for gold, that I might return one day with plenty to share with her I tenderly loved. My body was among the Indians, but my mind was far away from them and their bloody deeds. Experience has revealed to me that civilized man can accustom himself to any mode of life when pelf is the governing principle. That power which dominates through all the ramifications of social life and gives expression to the universal instinct of self-interest. By living with the savages, and becoming familiar with their deeds of injustice and cruelty, witnessing friends and companions struck down without a moment's warning. If a man has feeling, in a short time it becomes callous toward the relentless savage, who can mock the dying struggles of the white man, and indulge his inhuman joy as he sees his warm life-blood saturate the earth, on which, a few moments since, his victim stood erect in seeming security. Many a companion I have seen fall in the wild prairie or the mountain forest, dying with some dear name upon his lips, his body left as food for the wild beasts, or his bones to whiten in the trackless wilderness. It will be said, he might have stayed at home, 
and not have hazarded his life amid such dangers. So it might be said of the hardy mariner, whose compass guides him through all parts of the pathless ocean. The same motive impels them both on their perilous career, self-interest, which, while it gratifies their individual desires, at the same time enriches and advances society by adding its acquisitions to the mart of commerce. We left the Blackfoot country after a stay of 20 days, having purchased 39 packs of beaver and several splendid horses at a sum trifling in real value, but what they considered as far exceeding the worth of their exchanges. The chief lent us an escort of 250 mounted warriors, in addition to which nearly 100 flatheads returned with us to our camp, whom we met the second day on our road they having become alarmed for our safety and being on the way to revenge our deaths in the event of the Blackfeet having proved treacherous. On our arrival, we were greeted with the liveliest expressions of joy. Presents were made to our escort, and Mr. Sublet sent my father-in-law a valuable gift for his kindness to me, and as the assurance of his most distinguished consideration. I also sent some dress patterns to my wives, in addition to the presents I had previously made them. The Blackfeet, apparently well satisfied, returned to their homes. End of chapter 10